0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Grace and peace to you. Um, We introduced last week uh, this idea present there in the first portion of our passage this morning, this idea that our true lives, that who we really are, is hidden, stored away in Christ, who is himself in God. Meaning that our lives are not really in this world. We have died to this world. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we will be revealed with Him in glory. This hidden aspect of who we are will finally be revealed. Now, that's the long and short of the Christian life. First, there is this hiddenness, and then comes the revelation, the manifestation. It's the cross first, and then the crown. And so this being true hiddenness, and then revelation, it affects the way we live here and now. We are no longer to live, the Apostle Paul tells us, as if we belonged to this world, as if this were truly the place where our lives were laid up at, or in. But instead, he says, we are to seek the things above, where our life really is, where Christ is. And therefore, we are to put to death our members which are on the earth, and we are to put on heavenly virtues. All the former and worldly ways that constituted our old life are left behind. And we are now to live and act as those whose life, or lives are hidden with Christ in God. So there's a new way of living, a new pattern of life that we are to walk in. And the question is, what does this new heavenly life look like? And also, how do we live it? And our passage this morning provides us with the answers. So I want to proceed in uh, three sections. The first is about belief. The second is about action, direct and indirect. And the third is about hope, or where this whole project of salvation Ends. So let's begin first with belief. Now it's crucial that we deal with our sin and pursue righteousness in the right way. Because there is a right way, as is there a right way to doing most things. A house is not built at random, but there is an order and a process And though within that order there's freedom, it's nonetheless mainly, mostly unchanged. And in the same way, there is a general and unchanging pattern for pursuing righteousness in our lives, for living this new life that we've been introduced to us. And it's given to us here in our passage, and we'll get to a moment. But that means also, if there's a right way, that there are also wrong ways, or at least unhelpful ways of pursuing our goal, right? There are unhelpful ways of trying to pursue sanctification in Christ. There are paths that stop short of the destination. And the one that's targeted in our passage is something like moral heroism. That is, holiness achieved through sheer force of will. So the message is, according to this way of achieving holiness, is to try harder to do better, right, to, to uh, uh, pick up your bootstraps and, and go at it again. And the problem is that you are not trying hard enough. You're just not giving enough effort, right? You're, you're just not committed enough. And so what it comes down to at the end of the day is your commitment. That's the only thing, according to this, that stands between you and holiness. Now, it's easy to see where this road leads, it leads to burnout and despair and ultimately self-hatred because no matter how strong your will, it's no match for the flesh. No matter how much you recommit yourself, no matter how much you promise to change and to uh, pursue holiness, the flesh overcomes. And so you burn out, you despair, and ultimately begin to hate the person you are. Some of you have spent time on this road. I know that I've been there, but thankfully there's another road and it starts in a much different place. And it's not so much concerned with willpower. It's not so much concerned with your commitment. That comes later. It's principally concerned with faith. It's not asking us to do something. It's not even asking us to be something, but rather to believe something. And it starts with recognizing the truth of the gospel. That everything that we are trying to achieve, all the moral striving to reach this goal of holiness, everything that we are trying to achieve has already been given to us in Christ. Hence, faith. Now faith is not the most important theological virtue. That goes to love. And the other is hope. But faith does have the first place in priority, meaning it precedes love and hope. And the reason is because it's God's work that matters and ultimately not ours. It's God's work that matters, and therefore what matters from us is faith. The bottom line is not our determination or our commitment. Those will fail. Rather, the bottom line for us is our faith in what God has done for us in Christ. That comes first. And apart from faith, right? If we don't proceed in faith as we seek to live the Christian life, we're left to our own devices. And we're bound to fail against the enemies that are before us. So it begins with faith. And faith, and I want you to notice that implicitly in our passage. So we're commanded in verse 5, To put to death our members which are on the earth. And then again, the same command, this time with different imagery in verse 8 put them all aside anger, wrath, malice, and then uh, on and on. In other words, the apostle is telling us that it's our responsibility to overcome sin, right? We are commanded put to death your members which are on the earth, lay aside these evil practices. So there's something for us to do, yet our work rests upon divine foundations. We are to put to death our members which are on the earth, verse 5, because look at verse 3, we have died with Christ. In the same manner, we are to put aside our sin in verse 8 because, verse 9, we have already laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So you see, then our human work, putting to death and laying aside our sin, is only possible because of the prior divine work. So uh, you know, a cancerous tumor is removed first, the source, and then what remains is dealt with in radiation or chemotherapy. All right, a tree is poisoned at its roots, and then that spreads throughout the whole tree to its branches and ultimately to the fruit. And so too, God puts to death the old man on the cross. We have died. You have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. He puts the old man to death and then we bury him. We remove and excavate what remains of him, his former deadness in our lives. So our work, right, is dependent upon God's work. He acts, and we act from that. So more accurately, our work is dependent upon our faith in his work, right? Dependent upon um, what God has done. And, well, what has he done? Um, And what are we supposed to rest our faith in? Let's take a closer look at verses 8 and 9. It says, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So our faith rests in the fact that the struggle that every one of us is currently engaged in has already been won. The evil passions that we are to put aside have already, in some sense, been laid aside. So what this means for every one of us is that we are beginning from a place of victory rather than striving from it. The outcome is not uncertain. So beneath all our endeavors is an unshakable confidence that we are up against a defeated and defeatable enemy. Put aside these things for, the apostle says, you have already laid aside The old man. Now, he says to put aside these old things, but uh, 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 that translation is just a little bit too tame. It means something more like strip off or forcibly remove, right? This old man has been um, uh, put aside or stripped off from us. Now, it's the same word that's used in verse 15, referring to Christ disarming the principalities and powers. So the Apostle's saying is that that old you, that old person, has been stripped off from you like an old garment and been cast aside. It's been rendered powerless. It's impotent. It no longer has authority over you. It's been disarmed. And it recalls what the Apostle has been saying all along. Remember in chapter 2, the theme of circumcision. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So that old self, the deadness of the flesh, has been cut away by the Spirit of God. It's no longer something that clings to us. It's no longer something that defines us. And its power over us has been decisively broken. And therefore, no matter how strong the temptations of the flesh, no matter how loud and appealing its voice, it does not have the final say, and we do not have to listen to it. Because the old man has died. So despite, again, going back to last week, outward appearances. Despite the condemning whisper of conscience, we believe the truth and we obtain things unseen. You have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. We believe that, though we don't see it. Though maybe you never had a dramatic conversion experience where you went from one person to the next. We believe that, though oftentimes the evidence is not before us. And because we believe it, right, because we put our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, therefore we can put aside anger, wrath, and malice, right? It becomes possible. So you see then, our action or, or our hope of engaging in action with any sense of victory or any sense of of, of, uh, uh, of success on the horizon is undergirded by faith. Faith in God's work in Christ is the foundation of ours. And if you don't believe that, right, that the old man has been dealt with, there's going to be no victory. How? You're up against an enemy too strong. You're left to yourself. Faith is the beginning. So we move from the death of the old self, to the creation of the new self. Look at now verse 10. You have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is baptismal imagery, scholars think. The old man and his deeds are washed away, as it were, laid aside, and we are renewed with a new man clothed with Christ, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. For, the scripture says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 So, the flip side of this is that the old man, the sinful person, has been put to death. Um, The flip side of this is that Now the person that we're striving to become um, has already been put on. Once again, we begin from victory, complete from the outset in the completeness of Christ Jesus. So, I don't know if you guys feel like this sometimes, I do, that when I'm trying to live holy, or maybe there's a voice in my mind when I'm trying to do the right thing, that this is not who you really are. Right, you're, you're, you're putting on a charade, right, and you're, you're playing a game. But what this tells us is that our growth into holiness is not about working against our nature. I'm not trying to become something I'm not, or something that I could never actually be. It's rather this process of sanctification about becoming who we already are. You, are, you have been uh, made a new creation in Christ. You've put on the new self. And so, this new man is not rewarded to us, awarded to us as the result of moral striving. It's a gift of grace. It's freely bestowed upon us in our union with Christ. So, the holiness and righteousness that we long for is is not like out there, unattainable, but it's already been given to us. And it's a matter of, as the verse says, renewal. It's a matter of renewal. So, this is presented to us our death. And our resurrection in Christ, not as the object of sight, but faith. Appearance paints a different picture, but it's not the true one. We believe things unseen, that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So the first step then, right, if we want to have any success, is to believe in the gospel. To believe this truth about ourselves, that I genuinely have died. And that I genuinely am risen with Christ. And the second step, well, within this first one, is um, to implement this knowledge in our lives. As what the Apostle says in, in Romans chapter 6, um, it's a passage very similar to ours. In verse 11, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the truth about ourselves, in other words, is not to remain an abstract proposition, it's a truth to be worked out in our day-to-day lives, moving from theoretical knowledge to practical knowledge. The word that the Apostle uses is, in our translation, consider, but older translations use the word reckon, and I think that's a little better. It means reckon to believe or to regard something as true. So what the Apostle tells us is that we are to reckon That is to consider or to judge or to calculate, to work it out in our lives that we are indeed dead to sin, but alive to God. So the truth is moved from an abstract, purely rational realm, and it's brought into the deepest reaches of the heart. It's made flesh and bone. It becomes, in other words, our lived identity. I consider this to be true. Right, I take it and I make it, I appropriate it in my life. So being in Christ is not merely a part of me. It's not something that I hear at church, but that's disconnected from my day-to-day experience. Rather, it is who I am. It's the sum and totality of my existence. Through faith, we are hidden with Christ in God. And what is hidden with Christ in God becomes more and more evident to me. It becomes sight. It's not some faraway thing, but it's who I am in the here and now. Right. So do you see why then that faith must precede action? Again, take away faith for a moment and, and what are we left with? We're left with no foundation, no confidence, no hope with which to proceed. The process of becoming someone who is holy and righteous in Christ is doomed from the beginning. But faith... It gives us all things. The old man is already laid aside. The new man is already put on. We are merely becoming who we already are, doing what is most natural to our identity in Christ. So that's where it starts with faith. Believe these things about you, right? And as you believe them, suddenly it becomes more natural. Reckon them to be true. So, Step one is to believe and appropriate the gospel for ourselves, and step two commences the work. The project begins, which is itself a twofold process. First, we are to seek things above and then to put to death our earthly members. So the second stage of action is a twofold one, to seek things above and to put to death our earthly members. And these go hand in hand as two sides of the opposite coin that are necessary to each other in the process of sanctification. But one comes before the other. Seeking the things above takes priority over putting to death our members which are on the earth. Now, if we put um, two verses from our passage together, um, this becomes really clear. Look at... um, Verses 2 and 5, as I have them there on the screen. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So to set the mind on things above is a more indirect approach than a head-on one. And that's deliberate, right? Right? Our sinful passions, right, those uh, members that remain in our earthly body, they have to be weakened, right? They have to be um, cut off from provision before they can be put to death. It's something like maybe the oxygen supply being cut from the room, slowly suffocating the enemy, slowly weakening them before we can engage them um, one-on-one. Now again, it's, this is what the Apostle gets at in another place. Um, he writes to the Romans in chapter 13, verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Again, a passage very similar to ours. He says we are to make no provision for the flesh, meaning that we're supposed to starve it rather than um, continually feed it and nourish it. Make no provision for it. And how is it starved, right? How is the flesh starved? And, and conversely, how is it fed? Well, quite simply, by either setting our minds on things above or setting our mind on things that are on the earth. When our minds are set on the earth or things that are on the earth, there is plenty Abundant provision for the flesh and its lusts. That's really all the world is. In heaven, when our minds are set on things above, there is no provision for the flesh. The only provision there is that which is conducive to holiness and righteousness. Um, There's an old um, analogy that I like that comes down to us from the church fathers um, of the soul Right, the human soul as a mirror, meaning that um, it reflects that which is set before it or that which is presented to it. And it's a very biblical idea because humans are created, right, in Genesis 1 as images of God, right? We're supposed to reflect God. We're supposed to um, radiate his glory into the world. So it's our very nature, right? It's the very human constitution to mirror, to, to mimic God. Um, Well, first God, but then when we've fallen, other things. So quite naturally then, the soul is going to reflect what the mind is set on, whether it's things on heaven or things on earth. And experience proves this, right? Um, Take a stock in your life. What are you giving your attention to? What are you setting your mind on? And how is that affecting you? If you give your attention to the 24-7 news cycle, what happens to your soul, right? If you set your mind on that, well, it began, you begin to reflect what's set before you. You become caught up in bitterness and anxiety about everything going on. And the same holds for social media and all other forms of content that we consume. We naturally reflect them. We mirror that in our life, what's being fed to us. So the soul is cast into the mold of what we give our attention to for better or for worse. Thus, the Apostle Paul says, rather than setting our mind on things below where there is only abundant provision for the flesh, only more room to to open the door for all these evil passions that he's listed, rather than doing that, we must set our minds on things above. Now implied in the word set, And in its counterpart, verse 1, to keep seeking is the idea of constancy. The mind's attention toward things heavenly cannot be sporadic if our souls are going to be cast into its image. You keep setting your mind on things above, or keep uh, seeking the things above, and you set your mind on things above. So it takes sustained effort beyond attending church once a week, beyond even daily devotionals or or spending time with the Lord in the morning. It goes even to our moment-to-moment existence where we are constantly seeking the things above. And when we can do that, then our minds take a different shape. So we must set our minds on things above, but what more specifically does that look like? What what does it look like to set our minds on things above? Well, it means that we give our attention to, that we contemplate the glory of the risen Christ. Keep seek, seeking things above, the apostle says. Why? Because that's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Again, another passage, very, very similar to what we're discussing here. Second Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord. Glory transforms the beholder. To see the glory of the risen Jesus through faith in the very depths of our souls is to be transformed into his image. We all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that image from glory to glory. So to behold Him is to have our lives refashioned. To behold Him is to have our desires reordered. To behold the glory of Jesus Christ is the death of anything earthly that remains in us. Think of Isaiah in um, and uh, Isaiah chapter six, he sees the Lord of hosts high and lifted up, and he 's changed he 's commissioned. glory changes the one who beholds it. So what happens is that as we develop a taste for heavenly glory, as we begin to see the Lord high and lifted up, we can return to the earth with strength to put to death our members. our attachment to them. And their spell over us is progressively weakened. They've been deprived of water and they've been set out in the sun, as it were. And their root, which once ran deep and firm into our lives, begins to wither within. There's no provision any longer for it because our minds are somewhere else. And our evil passions now are ready to be plucked up from our lives. Now this moment, however... It came by virtue of a heavenly mindset. It cannot be achieved without it. If our minds still remain on the earth and we tried to put to death our members, the root would remain too deep and well watered beneath the surface to ultimately it be eradicated. <clears throat> we might be able to chop it down a little bit, but the root would remain. So for many, um, the problem is that we're trying to root out an evil practice with one hand while nourishing it with the other hand. A sin cannot be removed from our lives in abstraction from the rest of our lives. The whole of our focus, the whole of our life, has to be oriented in a heavenly direction before any one sin in our lives can be successfully dealt with. So we set our mind on things above, which enables us then to put to death our members which are on the earth. So first there is the indirect action, and then the direct action, and always in that order. Again, as Paul says in the verse we quoted earlier in Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Set your mind on things above, therefore, and make no provision for the flesh, in regard to its lusts. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh. And what we'll see next week, there is plenty for us to put on. We'll look at these lists of vices, and these lists of virtues. Um, uh, there's plenty for us, once we have put off, to put on. But first, we must set our minds on things above. So, summing up thus far, Step one is to believe the gospel, the truth about ourselves. Step two is to seek the things above, and then to put to death our members on the earth. And step three—excuse <clears throat> me—step three is to never stop doing steps one and two. These are the foundational practices of the uh, uh, spiritual life that are never left behind. All right? These are things that that we must always do. We must always be exercising our faith. We must always be directing our minds toward the proper end and always whittling down our evil passions until they are no more, right? That's simply it. It's going to be this way, however mundane and monotonous, until Christ returns in glory and our lives are revealed. Right? We're chipping away at the block. We're doing um, what the Lord has asked us to do day in and day out. And then... When he is revealed, our lives, the true nature of them, will be revealed with him in glory. And that's where this road ends, right? And that's the goal we always need to have set before our our eyes. Glory. You know, holiness and righteousness, these words that I've been using, along with their counterparts, godliness, virtue, and purity, if we're honest, these don't sound all that exciting. It sounds like I'm supposed to do these things, but it's not that desirable, or maybe we don't see them as we should. But if we understand them according to their scriptural definitions, we'll know that all these things are just another word for glory. That's the end of the road. Glory is a synonym, it's a placeholder for the kind of life that Christ lives. He says to the disciples, um, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember when he's um, explaining the scriptures to them and they don't understand. He rebukes them. He says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? That's the, that's the, the end of the Christ, his mission where it lands is in glory. The uh, unknown author of Hebrews says, Because he suffered death, Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor. That's where his road ends, at the right hand of God. Lord, over heaven and earth, sharing in the divine glory. Our road, right, the one that we've all been set on, ends in the same place. Sharing, and remarkably so, the glory and the splendor and the honor of the risen Lord. I think of that ridiculously amazing passage in Revelation 2 where it says as I Jesus says if I have overcome and sat down at my father's right hand on the throne if you overcome you will sit here with me also. So that's where our road ends in glory. That's the that's the goal of everything we're doing. There's a reward. Now it's because we were created in his image, right? This was the goal from the beginning, and now we are recreated in the image. Let's kind of draw things to a close with these two verses, 10 and 11. You have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So the new man that we've put on is not like the old one. The new man is not merely an upgraded version of the old man, but something different altogether. The new self that we've put on is someone destined to be conformed to the divine image, or as it puts here, one being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. (coughs) The life that has been implanted in us by our union with Christ, is higher than that of angels. It's more splendid than that of the principalities and powers. This life, it ends with a complete and total refashioning into the image of the risen Lord. No other creature can boast that, right? No other creature, creature shares in such glory as we are destined to. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? We're going to sit with Christ at the right hand of God. And though we start this journey all from different places, right? The apostle, is what he's saying here, Greek and Jew, slave and freeman, barbarian and Scythian. We all start from different places, but we all join the same road and we are all headed together to uh, be uh, sharing in the same destiny. So these distinctions of the old man, right, who we were, are progressively left behind and leaving behind that old identity. I'm pressing on, we are pressing on more and more and more toward the same goal, toward the same image of Christ. And this, leaving behind all that um, multiplicity, all that disunity, and moving forward to uh, one goal in Christ. This is the Father's good pleasure. That Christ, His Son, would have the first place in everything. Chapter 1, verse 18. That all the fullness would dwell in Him. Chapter 1, verse 19. That in the end, Christ would be all in all. Chapter 3, verse 11. All of creation is being drawn up from the depths of, uh, of corruption up toward its heavenly destiny, united to and sharing in Christ's glory. Ephesians 1, verse 10, that again, it was the Father's goodwill to sum up everything, to unite everything in Christ. So when he is revealed right at the end, he will be all. He will be all, Lord, Savior, King, God, to all to principalities and powers, to angels and demons, to men and every other created thing. He will be all in all. And the name which is above every name, at that name every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So all this is possible, our heavenly destiny, because he loved us and he's given himself for us. He became like us that we might become Like him, and that he might be all in all. So, um, as this is our goal, this is the end, it's only fitting that we wrap up our service at that point. As we partake of the bread and the cup, um, we proclaim to ourselves that Christ is our all, right? That he is the bread from heaven who, if anyone eats it, will never hunger again, that he gives living waters from which inside of us burst up and refresh. He is our all, and not only is he our all, but we worship him as our all. So I invite you now to come and receive the cup and the bread, to take them back to your seats and to meditate on these things, to commune with the Lord, and I will lead us in the Lord's Supper in just a moment.